0: com slash ACAST.
1: This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hello. Are you here for the podcast? podcast about work culture and happiness this is it hello here's some admin you can find us on twitter by searching eat sleep work repeat this week i tweeted about netflix updating their culture document and about all the challenges the ongoing saga of uber updating a couple of different episodes there i've also got a personal twitter actually if you'd like to read what my favorite album of the year is or me droning on about social justice i think this could be your go-to account People who are connected with me on LinkedIn got a slightly spammy email about the podcast this week. My LinkedIn is not what you'd call best practice. The political conversation I initiated on there a couple of weeks ago got so out of hand, I ended up blocking a few people. Who knew that LinkedIn even had a block function? It it, it was idiotic behaviour. And uh, I don't know. Do you ever wonder if you're the idiot? My, My colleague and friend Dara said... If you haven't worked out who the idiot is after the first 10 minutes of a meeting, it means it's probably you. He didn't use the word idiot to be fair. He's got an obscenely toxic mouth. He even gave one of his kids a swear word for a name. He's banned from three local playgrounds for calling her. as a result. Anyway, maybe my conduct on LinkedIn and elsewhere means I am an idiot and, and like the sixth sense, I'm the only one who hasn't realised yet. Let's get down to business. Today's episode is simple and brilliant. It's about the concept of obliquity and that's the idea that you can achieve complex goals indirectly. Specifically it came up in two discussions in earlier episodes with Richard Reeves and with Paul Dolan and it's the idea that if you want to be happier or make people happier at work you don't achieve that by going and trying to set out to make them happier so let's speak to the person who popularized that and and turned it into a business concept Uh, that's John Kay Uh, he, he really came up with it in his 2010 article and book called Obliquity John is one of Britain's leading economists he's a professor at LSE a fellow at Oxford University you don't need any more prattling from me but you should listen to John think about if you are trying to make people happier at work how would you set about doing it obliquely Here's John.
0: Explain to me the the concept of obliquity. Right, the concept of obliquity is that complex goals are often best pursued indirectly. The example of that that people find easiest is happiness that actually you don't become happy by pursuing happiness, whatever the American constitution may say. People are happy because they develop a satisfying career, good relationships with other people, comfortable family life, and so on. And that's very different from repeating pleasurable experiences, which we call hedonism, and which is really rather different. People who behave like that don't end up as particularly happy. So happiness is not actually the sum of Happy moments.
1: Yeah, and so you illustrate it through lots of examples. One of the examples, which I think from a business perspective is fascinating, is taking the example of ICI. So, so the example of ICI for a long time was a Proud British successful business. and
0: I started with a mission statement of ICI in the late 1980s when they said our aim is to the responsible application of chemistry and related sciences and business. And then went on to say through achievement of our aim, that is the application of science to business, we will make money for our investors, provide jobs for our workers and serve the communities in which we operate. They changed that in the early 90s to say our objective is to create shareholder value by focusing on business in in which we have competitive advantage, cost leadership and a prominent market position. Now what's interesting actually is to look at the history of the company in these two phases. ICI was formed in 1926, started as essentially a merger of a dye stuffs and explosives company. Focus of um, chemistry and business moved on to petrochemicals, fertilizers and so. And they made that shift in the 1930s. The 1940s, they saw that the, that the future of chemistry and business was in pharmaceuticals. So they set up a pharmaceutical division. They lost money in that division for 20 years, which would be difficult for any company to do now. But in the 1960s, they discovered blockbuster drug, which was beta blockers, uh, beneficial for people with high blood pressure, sold millions around the world. The pharmaceutical division became profitable, and soon it was the main engine of profits and revenue growth in the company. The ICI that started in the mid-90s, well, it's quite interesting to see what happened. share price it peaked in 1997 and it went steadily down. By 2003, it had lost 80% of its value. What they tried to do was to sell off some of the boring old businesses, the Staples and Petrochemicals and so on, and buy sexy new businesses. For a time, they wanted to be a smells company, they thought. And all this was a reshuffling of portfolio was a disaster. Share price had collapsed, stabilised early 2000s. But in 2007, what was really left of the company was taken over by Dutch company Exo Nobel. So that was what happened to one of Britain's, what was Britain's leading industrial company for most of the 20th century.
1: So specifically by aiming to increase shareholder value they had exactly the opposite. They had
0: exactly the opposite effect.
1: And so when, when it comes to the application of this for happiness I think you, t- you you talk in your work about how uh, John Stuart Mill was a sort of studier of, of
0: this. And he, his pursuit of happiness, he ended up reaching the, the same conclusion you've said he, here. Right. He did, actually. And John Stuart Mill was the great advocate, a great advocate of utilitarianism, that the pursuit of happiness was, in a sense, the end of life. He wasn't, if one's honest, a very happy man during his life. And it, in his autobiography, he said, I came to see that happiness could only be achieved indirectly by pursuing other goals.
1: So so I'm thinking, I always think specifically about work culture. And I think, you know, one thing that most people have got this notion that happy or motivated people will do better work and so consequently if we make people happy they'll do better work and with the learning of obliquity with the understanding of obliquity that seems to it be. to
0: make sense and uh, obviously there's a balance to be struck between making people happy and making them work. If you have a company which says our goal is to maximise shareholder value then the question anyone who works in that company is going to ask is why do I want to work for a company like this and the only answer you can give to that question is because we're going to make you a lot of money maybe that's our- the answer some of these companies give in terms of creating cooperative working relationships people who want to look after customers and care about customers and so on that's uh or people wanting to work for a business that they can feel proud of when they go down the pub or to a drinks party that's not the way to do it it's quite funny the the worst examples of that are of course companies in the financial sector which have said for some time our purposes to create shareholder value. The extreme case was Bear Stearns, which famously had a sign on its trading floor saying we make nothing but money. But in the end, it turned out that Bear Stearns didn't succeed in making that either. And they didn't make it for basically for a reason that these businesses like Bear Stearns or Lehman were actually destroyed by the greed of their own employees. Because if you, if you have a purely instrumental organisation, that's what will happen.
1: So is that specifically because if you've got an organisation that exists solely, you know, their 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 objective is binary to make money, then there's no rules or there's no culture that guards against that? There the most... might be rules,
0: but right. there's no culture. Right. Or the only culture is making as much money as possible. And that translates for most people into making as much money as possible for yourself. And the difference is between that and people working for an organisation that they feel is doing worthwhile, that people feel proud to work for. One of the things that has struck me is I, I think most careers where people earn a lot of money you know think think of things like law and so on people actually love the jobs they're doing people who are successful professional footballers uh, would pay football for very little money in fact if we look historically people like Stanley Matthews did so it's not money that is driving them to do it on the other hand people in the finance sector I've heard a lot of them say you know I I, I hate my job but I can't afford to give it up and quite a lot of people are anxious just to make enough money to be able to quit. A lot of people's reaction was a bit the one we're having in this podcast, of saying, kind of, I'd always known that, and you've put into words what I always thought. Or another version of that is, I'd always known that, hadn't I? Which is, which is perhaps less flattering. then you get the people in business who go on parroting the mantra about shareholder value and I don't quite know how one's going to change that. The silliest version of that from people in business I think is people who say of course business can't pursue multiple objectives and I find that just ridiculous. Everyone pursues multiple objectives. How else could you get through life? I, th- I think that the peak of the shareholder value boom is over. It, it kind of ended in two thousand and eight with the global financial crisis. And you may remember Jack Welch, General Electric, the U.S. company, who was often described as the architect of shareholder value or the shareholder value theory, which is not actually true because. He didn't talk about shareholder value until well into the 1990s when it had become, become very fashionable and he famously said in 2009, you know, shareholder value is the dumbest idea
1: I mean I wonder if we, I wonder if all these things are cyclical because right now there seems to be a lot of companies that are trying to profess a sense of purpose and meaning or mission which in itself is often seems quite
0: hollow. Yeah, and I'm cautious about this. You know, I, I want to say that you know, the business of business is business. In you know, a business, not only is it not the purpose of business to do good, but I really don't want business people going around deciding what good is. Because the business people who decide what good is are as or perhaps more likely to be Donald Trump and the Koch brothers rather than the people who have the ideas that we probably have about what business right. should be trying to do when it comes to like happiness then do you think like the focus on net national happiness
1: measures do, do you think those things are helpful
0: no i don't actually well right one thing i really dislike is people constructing these bogus indices of um, uh you know net national welfare or um, human development or whatever. I sometimes think of it as if you compare countries for um, human development and so on, then Canada and Norway tend to come top. And if you think about it, if Canada and Norway didn't come top or close to top, you wouldn't think, gosh, I must've been wrong about Canada. You would think there must be something wrong with this index. Yeah. And I think you'd be right. Mm-hmm. You know, we know Canada is pretty comfortable and we know Syria's not. And We don't need an index yeah. to, to tell us yeah. that. Um, We're telling the index what is happening yeah. rather than the other way around. It's one of my favorite examples to illustrate obliquity that everyone knows that the Pacific Ocean lies to the west of the Atlantic Ocean. But actually, if you look for the shortest route from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific, you discover it actually travels east because it goes through the Panama Isthmus and you arrive in the Pacific Ocean at a point east of the one where you started. And as it were, the most direct route through uh, from the Atlantic to the Pacific is through Nicaragua, or at worst the United States or Canada, which is much longer and which no one has has yet traversed. I have another example, actually, which I use even, I think is in a way even more striking, which is 2004, NASA launched this uh, mission to put a probe in orbit around Mercury. The probe took seven years to go into orbit. Before it got there, it circled the Earth once, Venus twice, mercury three times and you can see that problem if you find a probe direct to mercury it would either hit mercury or it would pass by mercury mm-hmm. and either way it wouldn't generate any of the information you want you had to adopt a bleak and a approach and therefore they they actually calculated this immensely complicated trajectory They did that very well and very successfully so that when it arrived seven years later it was in more or less exactly the place that they planned seven years earlier it would be. While that sounds immensely complicated, it's actually an easy problem by by the standards of the ones we face in business or finance or our personal lives. Because we know about the solar system. We, there are equations that people have written down, and they've been written down for centuries, what people call stationary, by which they mean they, they say the same, they're the same now as they were 500 years ago. And also the system isn't, isn't affected by the way we interact with it, that you know passing by Venus affects the rocket, but it doesn't affect Venus no. much. And none of these things are true of the typical complex problems we face. They're uh, affected by the way we interact with them. We don't really know what the underlying system is, and it's always changing anyway. That's what real problems are. And the notion that we can calculate solutions to that, to these kind of problems, is just fantasy. Even if you decided your objective is to maximise shareholder value, you, you go into your desk and you think, what do I do to maximise shareholder value today? And even after the event, you wouldn't know whether you'd done it or not.
1: I wonder, it it does raise the question, though, what you should aim for. Because, look, you know, so if, whether it's maximising shareholder value or whether it's maximising the motivation and the the contentment of people at work, is it always evident
0: what you should be aiming for? I think the way you make money in business is you create a great business, really. I'm sure Steve Jobs wasn't, uninterested in money but what he was really interested in was changing the face of computing right. so and he st- did and by the way he made a lot of money in the right. process
1: so you set out you, you, so your objective is to do whatever you're doing with a great quality or a quality that befits the level of the market you're going for Yeah, In a
0: sense the most paradoxical figure in all of this is Warren Buffett the the great investor who is now one of the two or three richest men in the world. If you ask why he does what he's doing he does it because he loves it and he's described money as just really a way of keeping score for me and famously he still lives in the same bungalow in Omaha he lived in 50 years yeah. ago The measure of his achievement in yeah. doing Doing what he wants to do. But if he was focused on making as much on uh, the trappings of being very rich, he wouldn't in fact have made anything like yeah. as much money as he has. Yeah. What motivates him is being a great investor.
1: Thank you to John. A brilliant concept there. I think one very easy to use and adapt into uh, your own discussions at work. Thank you for listening. I've got some really good episodes coming up. So, appreciate that. And thanks for uh, all the the feedback. So, always good to to hear from you. See you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?